Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of ERRX. In this Fresh Fruit series, I'll give you what I think are some of the most important updates, changes, and reaffirmed recommendations of the new sepsis guidelines that came out in October of 2021. For more detail, I encourage all of you to read the guidelines yourselves, all 59 glorious pages of it. Since this is a pharmacy podcast, I'll stick mostly to recommendations discussing medications. With that, let's jump right into it. New from the 2016 version is the recommendation against using QSOFA compared with other tools such as SIRS as a single screening agent for sepsis or septic shock. This is because since 2016, we've learned that QSOFA is more specific but less sensitive than having two of four SIRS criteria for early identification of sepsis. Remember that neither SIRS nor QSOFA are ideal screening tools for sepsis when used alone. Also new is the downgrade of the recommendation for giving at least 30 mL per kilogram of IV crystalloid fluid within the first three hours of sepsis identification. They now only suggest those 30 mL per kilogram of fluids be given. I know we're splitting hairs at this point, but I think that this is a great small change in the right direction because many providers get really frustrated with being forced to give this much fluid to all of their patients. Overall, it seems better to treat the individual patient, monitor their specific resuscitation parameters, and only give as much fluids as necessary, especially in the era of COVID. They continue to strongly recommend antibiotics within one hour of septic shock recognition, and they also recommend antibiotics within one hour in patients with confirmed or very likely sepsis. But remember, the recommendation and quality of evidence is highest in the setting of septic shock specifically. In patients with possible sepsis without shock, the guidelines now give you three hours to start antibiotics to give you time to exclude all non-infectious causes of illness. They suggest against using procalcitonin to decide whether or not to start antibiotics. This echoes the recent community-acquired pneumonia guidelines, which recommended starting antibiotics regardless of procal level if clinical evaluation suggests pneumonia. This is because Procal is best used as a surrogate of when to stop antibiotics, not when to start them, and we'll have more on this later. Regarding which antibiotics to use, they recommend adding coverage against MRSA only in patients with a high risk of MRSA. In terms of multidrug-resistant organisms, or MDRO, coverage, they suggest double covering only in patients with sepsis or septic shock at high risk for AMDRO and suggest only using one gram-negative agent in low-risk patients. Once the organism is identified and sensitivities are back, they again suggest against using dual gram-negative coverage. So overall, nothing really earth-shattering here, but it does get complicated, and this recommendation will be highly specific to your patient, institution, and local prevalence of MRSA or MDRO. At my site, we always add vancomycin because our MRSA rate is greater than 10 to 20%, and we almost never double cover gram negatives unless we have confirmed cultures showing a MDR strain in the past or a patient with severe septic shock who has numerous risk factors for resistant organisms. They suggest using empiric antifungal therapy in patients with high risk of fungal infection. As you know, most fungal infections develop in patients already in the ICU, and studies show us that there was no improvement in mortality rates in patients given antifungals up front. 
Typically, antifungals should be started in all patients with febrile neutropenia who fail to break fevers after four to seven days of broad-spectrum antibiotics. But again, this is very specific to each individual patient, and we take into consideration whether or not they're neutropenic, on TPN, or have had a history of invasive fungal infections. A cool new recommendation is the suggestion of using prolonged infusions of beta-lactam antibiotics after giving the initial bolus dose. This is to take advantage of their time-dependent action. There isn't much great data for this, but this intervention is pretty simple and has a low likelihood of causing harm. We started this practice at my site with Zosin, where we give the initial load of 4.5 grams over 30 minutes, and then give a maintenance dose of 3.375 grams every 8 hours, but over 4 hours, assuming the patient has good kidney function. This not only optimizes pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic parameters, it also leads to an overall reduced drug use and drug cost. They even specifically shout out the use of clinical pharmacists here to help with optimizing dosing strategies of all antibiotics based on their specific PK and PD parameters. As the guidelines suggest, please remember to look at antibiotics daily and de-escalate as soon as possible to help improve outcomes, reduce length of stay, reduce the risk of antibiotic resistance, and save money. Also, stick to the shortest course possible for the given infection. If the optimal duration of therapy is not clear, they suggest using Procal in addition to clinical evaluation to help determine when to discontinue antibiotics, assuming we have source control and the patient is improving. This is a very low-risk intervention and should be used if Procal is available at your site. But remember that the algorithms using Procal for de-escalation differ in the frequency of monitoring and thresholds of percentage change in the Procal for antibiotic discontinuation. They reaffirm the recommendation to use crystalloids as the first-line fluid, with a new suggestion of using balanced fluids, like lactated ringers, over normal saline. This is a change from 2016, which recommended either balanced fluids or normal saline. And this is because we have newer data that associates normal saline with hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, renal vasoconstriction, and AKI. This has been fueled by studies like the SMART trial, which showed improved mortality in patients receiving balanced fluids over normal saline. We haven't really implemented more lactated ringers use at my site, since most of the providers aren't really convinced by the data, and it opens up a whole new issue of drug compatibility. Norepinephrine continues to be the first-line agent for septic shock, with the suggestion of adding vasopressin as the second agent once norepi is running at greater than 0.25 mics per kilo per minute. Epinephrine can be used as the third-line agent. At my site, we carry angiotensin 2, and we try to use it as a third- or fourth-line agent, which is discussed in these guidelines as well. As a new recommendation, they recommend giving vasopressors peripherally rather than delaying their start for a central line, especially if the vasopressor is administered for a short period of time and is given in a peripheral line proximal to the antecubital fossa. They suggest using IV corticosteroids at a dose of 200 mg per day, typically 50 mg every 6 hours, if patients are on norepi or epi at a dose greater than 0.25 mics per kg per minute for at least 4 hours. Now, this is new from the 2016 version, which did not support the use of steroids unless fluids and vasopressors fail to stabilize the patient. They don't recommend specific durations, 
but most trials gave them for five to seven days or until ICU discharge or death. In the setting of ARDS, they suggest using intermittent boluses over continuous infusions of paralytics. This is a change from the 2016 guidelines, which recommended a continuous infusion of paralytics for 48 hours. Since that time, the ROSE trial was published, and it showed that continuous infusions didn't improve mortality when compared to light sedation with as-needed paralytic boluses. Remember to make sure your patients are at a RAS of negative 4 or negative 5 with continuous infusions or boluses of opioids and benzos prior to giving any paralytic because being awake and paralyzed would be terrifying. And lastly, my favorite new recommendation, they do away with vitamin C therapy, suggesting against its use. This is because a few trials and meta-analyses found no difference in outcomes with using the infamous vitamin C cocktail. Check out episode 44 for my take on the vitamin C hype. As always, thank you so much for your time. Don't forget to click on the show notes where you can find links to where you can leave me a review, subscribe to the pod, check out my references, and even support the show on buymeacoffee.com. Also, please read the disclaimer found in the show notes and on the website. And remember that everything you hear or read on the podcast is for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice or without consulting your own references. (laughs) 